Hello there and welcome back to the Paradox Podcast, or welcome for the very first time. My name is Craig Hadley and I am one of the pastors at Paradox, and we have been going through the Bible one book at a time, one month at a time. We are currently in a series on the book of Judges, and when we give sermons here at Paradox, they are designed to start discussions and not end them. We currently meet in person in Redlands, California, or you can join us online at either 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. Pacific time. And we are so glad that you have found us this morning, this afternoon, this evening, whenever you are listening to us. Today we are looking at Judges 11, and this sermon is entitled, The Judgment of Jephthah's Daughter. of Judges 11 begins in Judges chapter 10, verse 6. We read, The Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, worshiping the Baals and the Estarts, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. Thus they abandoned the Lord and did not worship him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and God sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hands of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the Israelites that year. For 18 years, they oppressed all the Israelites that were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. So we read that God becomes angry with Israel because Israel is not as devoted to God as God thinks they should be. Therefore, God withdraws God's hand of protection from Israel and allows the Philistines and the Ammonites to conquer Israel and oppress them for the next 18 years. This is the background as we are introduced to the main character of this story in Judges 11, a man named Jephthah. We read in verse 1, Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, the son of a prostitute, was a mighty warrior. Gilead was the father of Jephthah. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah away, saying to him, You shall not inherit anything in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. So the people of Gilead reject Jephthah because he is an illegitimate son of Gilead. Therefore, his half-brothers look at him and say, We don't want to divide our inheritance with you, so they kick Jephthah out. And Jephthah wanders from the land of Gilead to the land of Tob. Now, the land of Tob probably means nothing to you, but if you were to look at a map of modern-day Israel, it's important to know that the land of Tob is typically off the map to the east. The land of Tob is the wilderness in this story. So he is driven from civilization out into the wilderness, and we read in Judges 11.3 that outlaws collected around Jephthah and went raiding with him. So it's very easy to imagine this scenario in our head. There are these brothers who do not want to split their inheritance with their half-brother. So they kick him out, and he goes to the wilderness, and he becomes a grizzled and crusty and extremely tough person of the land who is known as a bandit by society standards. Keep that in mind as we continue to read in verse 4. After a time, the Ammonites, who we read about in the last chapter, made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah, 
from the land of Tob. In other words, the people of Gilead start to freak out because the Ammonites go to war with them. And they say to themselves, what should we do? We should get a tough warrior. Who's the toughest person we know? Oh, that guy that we kicked out of our society, Jephthah. He's in the wilderness acting the role of a bandit. Why don't we get him to help us fight the Ammonites? So they cross into the land of Tob, into the wilderness, and they approach their half-brother, Jephthah. And when they get to him, they say to him, come and be our commander, Jephthah, so that we may fight with the Ammonites. Now, I picture this moment being a moment of sweet revenge for Jephthah. Here, the very people who kicked him out of his homeland have come back to him begging for him to help them. If anyone here has ever been dumped, then this is your dream scenario, isn't it? When your ex comes crawling back and saying, oh, I need you back in my life, baby. That's the moment that all of us who have been dumped have longed for at some point in our life. So Jephthah hears them asking him for help and he responds with two questions. He says, are you not the very ones who rejected me and drove me out of my father's house? So why do you come to me now when you are in trouble? And Jephthah knows this answer, right? But he wants to hear them say it. He wants to hear those half brothers who kicked him out say to him, we need you, Jephthah. And that's exactly what they say. In verse 8, they say to him, Nevertheless, we have now turned back to you, Jephthah, so that you may go with us and fight with the Ammonites and become head over us, over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So these half-brothers are all nervous that the Ammonites are going to wipe out their existence. So they strike a deal with Jephthah, who in their eyes is a grizzled and tough and violent man who can help lead them to victory over the Ammonites. They promise that if he comes back and fights the Ammonites and wins, that they will make him king over them and he will be allowed to rule over the people who once kicked him out of their town. Jephthah cannot pass this up. And so he goes back with his half-brothers to the land of Gilead to lead the Israelites in their conflict with the Ammonites. Now, in verse 11, Jephthah decides to try diplomacy with the Ammonites rather than full-out warfare. He sends messengers to the king of Ammon and says to him, What is there between you and me that you have come to me to fight against my land? The king of Ammon sends messengers back to Jephthah and he tells him that it's because Israel, on coming back from Egypt, took away the land from Ammon, known as the Arnon to the Jabbok and down to the Jordan. Now, he says, please restore this land to us peacefully and we can avoid war. Now, it's important for us to make a note of a few things as we consider why the Ammonites want to go to war with the Israelites. The Ammonites believe that centuries ago, when Israel returned from Egypt in the Exodus, that when they arrived in the Promised Land, they took a large swath of land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, from the kingdom of Ammon, and the kingdom of Ammon centuries later, is demanding that Israel returns it back. 
If Israel does not return that land back peacefully, then Ammon will have no choice but to go to war with Israel, and Israel is nervous that Ammon will win. This is all sent via a message to Jephthah, and Jephthah responds with messengers of his own back to the king of Ammon. The messengers tell the king, thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites, but when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Gadesh. And over the next several verses, Jephthah gives a history lesson to the king of Ammon and it says, no, 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 we didn't go through any tribe's lands when we returned to the promised land. We went around the kingdom of Edom. We went around the kingdom of Moab. We camped on the border of the land of the Amorites. And once we were there camped on the border of the land of the Amorites, the Amorites attacked us and we fought back. We conquered the Amorites and then claimed the land that is known today as the Arnon all the way to the Jabbok. And so that long, complicated history lesson can best be summed up in a conversation between Jephthah and the king of Ammon as this. Jephthah asks the king of Ammon, why are we fighting? Can't we solve this peacefully? And the king of Ammon replies, I'm mad that your people took our land from the Arnon to the Jabbok centuries ago. Jephthah hears this and says, we didn't take that land from the Ammonites. We took that land from the Amorites. And you're the king of Ammon, and that land that you want back was never yours in the first place. Now, in English, Ammonites and Amorites are very similar to each other in their spelling and pronunciation. In the Hebrew language, the Hebrew word for Ammonite is Ammoni, and the Hebrew word for Amorite is Emori. So Jephthah says, to the king of Ammon, no, we didn't take that land from the Ammoni, we took it from the Emory. And you, the king of the Ammoni, have misheard your own history. Jephthah does not view this as an innocent miscommunication. He views this as an aggressive attack on the Israelite way of understanding their own history. So he escalates the situation in verse 23 when he says to the king of Ammon, So now the Lord, the God of Israel, has conquered the Amorites for the benefit of his people Israel. Do you intend to take their place as king of the Ammonites? Should you not possess what your God Chamosh gives you to possess? And should we not be the ones to possess everything that the Lord our God has conquered for our benefit? In other words, Jephthah says to the king of Ammon, you're being greedy. You should be happy with the land that your God gave to you. And we will be happy with the land that our God gave to us. The king of the Ammonites did not appreciate this sentiment from Jephthah. And so he prepared his people to go to war with the Israelites. In verse 30, we read that Jephthah is preparing his people to go to war with the Ammonites. And on the way to war, he decides to make a promise to God. He says to God, if you will, God, give the Ammonites into my hand, then whoever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return victorious from the Ammonites, shall be the Lord's, to be offered up by me as a burnt offering. 
We then read about the war between the Israelites and the Ammonites, and it lasts only for one and a half verses. This war takes place in verse 32 to 33, and we read, So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. Jephthah inflicted a massive defeat on the kingdom of Ammon. So Jephthah returns victorious to his own house, and we read what happens in verse 34, keeping his promise he made right before the war in mind. We read, Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and there was his daughter, coming out to meet him with timbrels and with dancing. She was his only child. He had no son or daughter except her. Verse 35 tells us that when Jephthah saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. He then explains to her the vow that he made and tells her that she needs to be offered as a sacrifice on an altar to God. Now, upon hearing this news, she takes it remarkably well and responds in a very similar way to the tradition of Isaac, who was Abraham's son. Her words in verse 36 are, My father, if you have opened your mouth to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has given you vengeance against your enemies, the Ammonites. She then asks her father for two more months to live so that she may lament in the hills, and he grants her the two months. We then read in verse 39, at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to the vow he had made. He kills his daughter, sacrifices her on an altar, and the story of Jephthah's daughter comes to a close. Wow, what a frightening, barbaric, and violent story. This story is buried deep in the book of Judges, and it is very rarely spoken about. But it is spoken about. I remember I once heard a sermon about this story in church. Not only that, but I grew up in church school, and I heard this story talked about, I believe, twice in my religion classes. Now, while I remember three people talking about this story, they were very different people, but they all came to the same logical conclusion as to what this story meant for us in the day that they were teaching it. The same conclusion they came to was that the moral of the story of Jephthah and his daughter is that we should never make a rash promise to God. In other words, we should really think long and hard about what promises we make to God because those promises are unbreakable. And so we shouldn't rush into those promises that we make before the Almighty. Jephthah's sin, they say, is that he made a promise without thinking about the consequences. 
And because he made that promise in such a rush and without any foresight, he ended up having to live with the consequences, which were apparently killing his own daughter on an altar. So the story of Jephthah, according to this church sermon, as well as these two different religious classes, is that Jephthah serves as a cautionary tale to remind us to think long and hard and very clearly about the ramifications of the promises that we make to God, because those promises simply cannot be broken under any circumstances. And while these three very different people taught this story with the very same interpretation, there is a major problem with that interpretation. This problem is brought forward by the scholar John J. Collins, who used to teach at Yale University. He writes in his commentary that Jephthah is often criticized for making a rash vow, but this criticism is not made in the text where he appears to act under the influence of the Spirit of the Lord. What Dr. Collins is saying is that the book of Judges seems to hold up Jephthah not as a cautionary tale, but as a hero for being willing to stick by his promise to God, even when that promise came at a great expense for himself. And while modern interpretations and tellings of this story might hold up Jephthah as a villain in the story, there is no question that in the book of Judges, Jephthah is considered to be a hero. Now, what's interesting is that this idea that Jephthah is a hero continued on for centuries. Because a few books to the right of the book of Judges is the book of 1 Samuel. And in that book, there is a speech that the prophet Samuel is giving to the people of Israel in which he is trying to convince the Israelites that God has been with them throughout their history. Samuel's main argument in this speech is that God continually sent liberators and heroes to act on Israel's behalf in a world full of evil. And so Samuel lists heroes that are meant to be tangible manifestations of God's presence among God's people. And his words are, and the Lord sent Gideon and Barak and Jephthah and Samson and rescued you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. In other words, Samuel tells the people of Israel, remember Jephthah? That's how you can know that God is with us. And he really glosses over the whole, you know, child sacrifice thing. <laughs> now, it's here that Christians today often read stories like this of Jephthah and the fact that Samuel remembers him as a hero. And they say things like, "Ugh, the Old Testament is so barbaric. God is so violent in those books. I just like the God of the New Testament so much more. To which I would say to Christians who object to this story in that way, well, excellent, let's turn to the New Testament then. And let's turn to a book called Hebrews, and let's look at chapter 11 in that book. Now, chapter 11 of Hebrews is a famous book in Christianity. Christians know it as the Hall of Faith. In this chapter, the author of Hebrews holds up all sorts of humans in the Bible as examples of how we should live our lives of faith. These are people who we should model our lives after, according to the author of Hebrews. 
And so we hear about Noah and Abraham and Moses. We remember the stories of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And then in verse 32, the author remembers other heroes of the faith when he says, And what more should I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah. Jephthah, the guy who murdered his daughter, is being held up as a hero of the faith for Christians. So it's important to point this out that three different authors living at three different times all came to the same conclusion about Jephthah, that he was a hero of the faith because he lived by his word. Now, this is an important contrast to point out because let's imagine that those three different authors of the books of the Bible, Judges, 1 Samuel, and Hebrews, sat in the same church service that I sat in and heard the pastor say, oh, this story of Jephthah is difficult. But the moral of this story is that we should never make a rash promise to God. I believe that if all three of these authors were in that church service, they would respond to that sermon by saying, what? No, you missed the point. Jephthah is a hero. This is stunning because by our standards today, Jephthah is not a hero. And whenever the hero of a story murders a child, then we should always ask the question, are we sure this person is actually the hero? Because everything inside of me is telling me that when he murders his daughter on an altar, that no matter what else this guy does, he's pretty much the villain of this story. How is it that Jephthah can act in such a sinful manner to the point where we find his actions to be unforgivable? And yet we have three books in the Bible that look at Jephthah and say, oh, no, 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 no. He is a man who we should hold up on a pedestal and model our lives after as we seek to live in faith. How is it that we got here? Because when I hear these three different books of the Bible telling me that Jephthah is a hero, I immediately respond with, is he though? Is he really a hero? So let's talk about how these three books of the Bible view Jephthah as a hero. To understand that, we have to talk about theology. Now, theology is the study of the nature of God and religious belief. And these three different authors have a very different understanding of the nature of God than you and I have today. Now, this theology can best be encapsulated in that introductory paragraph that we read at the beginning of this sermon. The paragraph that introduced this story in Judges 10, verses 6 to 8. We read, The Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, worshiping the Baals and the Astarts, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. Thus they abandoned the Lord and did not worship him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and God sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. Now, these verses very clearly point out what the author believes about the nature of God. There is a cause, an effect, 
and a consequence. And all three of these moments revolve around what the author believes the nature of God to be. The cause of this whole story is that the Israelites began to worship other gods. There's no doubt in the author's mind that all of this story happens because this was the inciting incident. The author did not write, the Israelites were minding their own business when the Ammonites showed up and declared war with them. That's not the story, according to the author of Judges. The effect of that story is that God became angry with the Israelites due to their infidelity. The consequence was that God then allowed the Philistines and the Ammonites to conquer and oppress the Israelites. In other words, the author of Judges believes that more than anything else, God's desire for human beings is complete and total loyalty. And loyalty to God is the highest ethical standard that one human being can subscribe to. This is understandable because when you think about how influential the Ten Commandments have been, you look at the Ten Commandments and you realize that the first commandment is a commandment of loyalty. You shall have no other gods before me. So the author believes that the most important thing for human beings collectively and individually to do is to become unquestionably loyal to God, whether they believe God is moral or not. This theology ran from the author of Judges to the author of 1 Samuel, and yes, all the way into the New Testament to the author of Hebrews. I believe that all three of these authors believed that complete and total loyalty to God is the deepest form of faith. This idea is what informs and colors the entire story of Jephthah, because Jephthah makes a vow to God to sacrifice whoever comes out of his doors to meet him when he returns from battle. This is ultimately a vow of complete and total loyalty because what he's telling God is that he will gladly sacrifice another human being from his own household so that God might know that God is always more important to Jephthah than any of the humans in his house. And while that may sound screwed up to us today, when you believe that loyalty is the most important thing, it all of a sudden enables you to overlook things like child sacrifice. So Jephthah goes to war, he wins, he returns home, and he sees his daughter coming out to greet him. He is incredibly disappointed that it's his daughter because he remembers his vow. He tears his clothes and he says, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord and I cannot take back my vow. Now, the author of Judges heard this story and obviously believed it, which is why they wrote this story. The author of 1 Samuel heard Jephthah saying, I cannot take back my vow and said, That's right, you can't. The author of Hebrews believed the same. And when you consider the religion teachers I had, as well as that sermon from the pastor that I heard, all three of those modern interpretations would agree with Jephthah. You're right. You cannot take back your vow to God. You do have to go through with this sacrifice. 
But if you're like me, you hear this story today and you say to yourself, wait a second. Jephthah, I hear you saying I cannot take back my vow. And you know what my response is? Yes, you can, Jephthah. You don't have to go through with this, you know, right? Like you could say, man, I made a vow. And I'm not sure it was ultimately a moral vow. And now that I see the look in my daughter's eyes, I realize how much I have devalued her as a person. Let's reimagine this story for a moment. And let's pretend that Jephthah saw his daughter coming out to greet him. And he realized how much he did not value the people who were in his household. So he recommits himself to caring for and learning the stories of the people that are closest to him because he flippantly dealt with their lives as he made promises to God. What if Jephthah told his daughter, I made a promise to God that I would offer a sacrifice before God from whoever walked out of my house first. But then through tears, he said, I realized how selfish that vow was. And with you, my daughter, I simply cannot keep it. Sure, he might continue. Maybe God will kill me because of this broken promise. But shouldn't I be the one to suffer the consequences of this rather than you, my daughter? I will gladly take your place, even if it means I must forfeit my life. In that retelling of the story, isn't Jephthah the hero? Doesn't Jephthah move from being the antagonist of this violent story to the protagonist of this story of redemption? When we consider the story from this angle, we realize that this story is teaching us something that feels counterintuitive and ultimately wrong. Because this story of Jephthah and his daughter teaches us that sometimes the best way to honor God is to break our promises to God. And while this seems wrong to say out loud, I have to tell you, I have found it to be true in my own life. I want to tell you three stories about promises that I made to God. Once upon a time, I was in the fourth grade and my parents had a basketball net in the corner of their driveway. I went to the opposite corner of the driveway and looked at the basket one day and thought to myself, there's no way I could possibly make it from here. And then shortly after that, I thought, but I could make it with God's help. So I whispered a prayer to God and said, God, if you are truly there, if you are truly alive, then I want you to show me that you are with me. And I want to make this shot into that basket all the way over there. And if you do this, then I promise that I will always believe that you exist. I crouched down low. I jumped. I heaved the ball toward the basket. And the ball went in. The second story took place during my junior year of high school. I went to junior senior Bible conference. And while I was there, I had a mystical experience. I felt like I met God 
for the first time. And upon meeting God, I felt like I had to get more religious to understand God better. So I began reading the Bible for the first time in my life by myself. As I began reading through this book at 17 years old, I realized there were standards and morals that I was not living by in my own life. I quickly prayed to God, asked for forgiveness, and then said, I promise that I will live my life by the word of God from here on out. Which brings us to the third story, which took place on September 5, 2010. I remember the date because this was the day that I got married to my wife, Kimmy. In my vows to my wife, in front of all of my friends and family, I said these words. I said, I give everything I am to you and nothing will be more important to me save God himself. And while I didn't say these words explicitly, what I was implying, a promise to God. I told everyone there that I promise that I will always love God more than Kimmy. So at three very different points in my life, I made promises to God. Let's see how those promises played out, shall we? The first promise was from a fourth grader telling God that I would always believe in God if the basket went through the hoop. It did. And after that ball went through the hoop, there was this moment of panic as I realized that I had to now believe in God for the rest of my life. And so I believed I believed everything. I believed that God was everywhere and that God was triggering each moment around my individual life. But as the years went by, I began to suffer more. I had family members who passed away. I had friends who died in accidents. There were diagnoses and sicknesses and there were objective intellectual arguments. And I began to doubt. Now, there were pastors and teachers who told me that doubts were the enemy of the faith and that I should not hold on to those doubts, but should suppress those doubts with everything that I had and just have more faith so that I could truly believe. But then I started hearing other Christians talk. And these Christians I started to truly admire. And when I heard them talk about doubts, they didn't speak about doubts as though they were threats to their faith. Rather, they spoke about doubt in a way that it was part of their faith. Doubt wasn't an enemy. Doubt was a companion. And the more I talked to them, I found that their faith included both belief and doubt and allowed them to sit in the paradox of what those two feelings that they held inside them ultimately implicated. Eventually, I let go of the idea that I always needed to believe in God and instead embraced the paradox of a spiritual journey with both faith and doubt. And upon breaking that promise, I found that there is a deeper faith than just constant and blind belief. There is a deeper faith that includes our doubts the second promise I made to God was that I promised that I would always live by the teachings and ethics of the Bible. 
And after I made that promise, there was a problem in the fact that I kept reading the Bible. I eventually came across the book 1 Timothy, and in chapter 2, we read these words, Let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. Now, this was a very difficult verse for me to read. I had promised God that I would live my life by the standards of Scripture. And yet, here was a standard of Scripture that I believed to be entirely unethical. And so, you know what I did? I stopped reading the Bible because it caused too many questions and I had a promise to keep. I figured ignorance was a better way to go than to break my promise to God. Now, when I read this verse today, I, I could talk about authorship or historical context or the progression of present truth. And while all of those things are important and I do teach about all of those things, I think it's important for us to look at verses like this that are so blatantly filled with hate misogyny and discrimination and be comfortable with just replying with one word. No, we're not going to do that. I believe that the deepest form of faith was to live my life in a way that all of my morals were informed by the Bible. But I found that when I broke that promise to God, to live my life by every word that's in the Bible, that there is a much deeper faith that exists and asks us to say no to the Bible. Which brings us to the third promise I made, which was that I would always love God more than Kimmy. This promise is very and eerily similar to the vow that Jephthah made before he went to war. Jephthah wanted to prove to God that he would always love God more than any other human in his life. Because Jephthah viewed love as a competition. While I don't know if I would have said those words on 2010, on some subconscious level, I did believe that because this vow, this promise, was ultimately ascribing to the idea that love was a competition. And when we believe that loyalty is the ultimate ethic, love becomes competitive very quickly because it establishes a hierarchy as to who is loyal and who is not. And since that time in 2010, when I made this vow in front of all the people I cared about and before God, I've started to read different sections of the Bible, like 1 John 4, that tells us that love isn't a competition. Any time that we love anyone, John 4 says, we are living in the presence of God. I read Song of Solomon chapter 5, in which the narrator encourages the reader with a blessing. She writes, eat friends, drink, and be drunk with love. There is no such thing as competitive love. And any love that is ultimately competitive is not love at all. There's this idea out there that loyalty, complete and total loyalty, is the ultimate ethic when it comes to God. But when I broke that promise and started to discard 
the idea of competitive love, I found that there is a deeper faith that always inspires us to love more. I just shared with you three different stories in which I broke three promises I made to God. And what I found with each of these stories is that they led me into a deeper faith in God. And while this notion is completely counterintuitive, it reminds me of the story of Jephthah, which teaches us that sometimes the best way to honor God is to break our promises to God. To my friends who are listening to these words today, may we have the courage to look honestly at the promises that we've made to God. And may we have the courage to break the promises that are inhibiting our ability to love each other more, to love ourselves more, and to ultimately love God more. May we open ourselves to deeper faith in God. Amen.